Okay, um, two announcements as we're coming in. Last weekend, um, somebody found a piece of jewellery in the ladies' toilets which looks like it's either a bit of glass or an extraordinarily expensive diamond. And I'm not qualified to say... <laughs> To say which, but if it is a, an expensive diamond that's got dislodged from a diamond ring, then come and ask me because I have got it. Um, the second thing is that um, a couple of uh, you have spoken to us about uh, participating in some sort of discussion on you know how we push the gospel conversations uh, website and operating model and we've thought for a while that what we'd it'd be a good thing for those who are interested in let's say the strategic direction that we take gospel conversations which is an accident i mean gospel conversations is an accident we never planned it but it having become i think as useful as it is to a lot of people there are um, options we've got for instance pushing into publication um, for instance uh, pushing into well, uh, one critical thing, you know, who, who we might have as, as speakers in the future. So what Ron and I thought might be an interesting thing, for those who would like to participate in an initial discussion about that, um, we might have that discussion uh, at lunchtime or begin it at lunchtime if anyone's interested in, in participating because there's a nice uh, cafe downstairs and we could uh, get some food and then gather around a, a table here and just... Having just an exploratory discussion because at the moment it's really up to Ron and I and Ron and I have a kind of, we wander through life uh, so we're not exactly that organised. We would take any help we can get. Um, so if, if, does that sound like a good idea for some people? I'm not, I'm not, please, if everybody stays it'll be difficult to manage the conversation. I'm not wanting it but I know some of you would probably like to throw some ideas in because it's becoming more influential than we had expected. Okay, well with that, um, back to you again, Ian. Okay. Uh, you may remember I said last weekend that I am quite deliberately following Edwin Judge's order uh, in building on his talks. And so he began with the cosmos, and then he went to the good society, and then he went to the individual. And so that's the order that I'm also following, but you'll understand that you could easily do it the other way around. It doesn't really matter where you come into this because everything is connected to everything else. And the question of politics, what you think the good society is, obviously is directly bound up with what you think a human being is, actually. It's fairly obvious that that's the case. And you will not be surprised that the question we are now looking at in this session, what is a human being, is an important biblical question. Um, it turns up in Psalm 8, verse 4. What is a human being? It's right there. Yeah, you would expect that uh, because our biblical authors are part of a very ancient conversation, and as soon as human beings are capable of self-reflection and conversation and are aware that there's more than one idea about stuff, they're going to start thinking about these important questions. And so, again, I'll show you part of the slide, but not all of it. Um, as I've been suggesting, that question about what a human being is, is directly tied up 
with what you think the story is that we're involved in, what is the world, cosmology, and beliefs about God or the gods or the ultimate or the one or whatever. What's the transcendental uh, uh, vision? So, I want to um, talk about this very question of humanness now, and I want to begin in ancient Mesopotamia once again. So, we have this mosaic Yahwism arising out of this ancient Near Eastern environment, and in the broader culture right across the ancient Near East, uh, inevitably, we have certain views, explicit and implicit, about what a human being is. And this is particularly clear in Mesopotamia. We just happen to have more texts surviving that explicitly address this uh, issue. In ancient Mesopotamia, just to remind you of the cosmology and theology, just very, very brief, uh, briefly, uh, you'll remember the idea that in Mesopotamia, the cosmos comes into being for the benefit of the gods. If you ask, what is the cosmos? Fundamentally, it is where the gods live, is the fundamental answer. That's reflected in the building of cities. Cities were not built for human beings. Cities are built for the gods, actually, in ancient Near Eastern thinking. And the crucial building in a city is a temple. Why? Because a temple is the palace of a god. You see, it all hangs together, pretty obviously. And then inside the temple, guess what you find? A representation of a god, a cult image. So, it's a bit like those Russian dolls, you know, you go from the bigger down to the smaller. But your cosmology, at the end of the day, touches down in a particular idea of the, the, the individual deity in his palace, in the city-state, in the cosmos, and that's what it's all about. It's all about the gods. The king, you may remember, is also a divine figure of some kind, either a, a semi-god or a fully a god. So, this is how the gods were thought of. This is how the cosmos was thought of, and it immediately raises the question in the inquiring mind, where do human beings fit into that worldview? What does it mean to be an ordinary human being, by which I mean everyone else except the king? What does, what does that look like? And uh, we have some sources on that uh, from ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Sumerian and Akkadian sources. And these sources consistently portray human beings as having been created to work for the gods. This quote on the screen is from John Walton. Uh, what are human beings for? They were created to do the work that is essential for the continuing existence of the gods that they have tired of doing for themselves. Right? That's the basic idea. So, what is a human being? A human being is a cosmic afterthought. That's what a human being is in ancient Mesopotamia. Human beings are in the mass, are created as a slave class to meet the needs of the gods in a highly stratified hierarchical society with the divine king at the top of the pyramid. 
Some human beings would uh, do their service in the palace, looking after the king. Others would do their service in the temple, looking after the image of the, the god. Everyone else would be part of the great machine, as it were, that was the ancient city-state, uh, which was all about the, the keeping the gods happy and content in the temple. So the whole economy of the city-state is directed towards that. So you can see that we have a world here in which the whole of human society is oriented toward the gods. And the interests of the temple and the state are thoroughly intertwined uh, in that way. The religiosity arising from this infused the entire system. And the predominant mood, the atmosphere of these uh, ancient city-states was fear and servility. Uh, these, uh, here's a quote from uh, an ancient Near Eastern uh, scholar, Botero. Uh, these societies were marked, he says, by a centrifugal feeling of fear, respect, and servility with regard to the divine, which was portrayed on the human model and spread out over the whole society of supernatural beings whose needs people were expected to fulfill whose orders were to be carried out with all the devotion and submission, but also generosity and ostentation that were thought to be expected by such lofty figures. That's what it was all about. The meaning of life, uh, this is what the meaning of life was. So, not for the first time, what do we see? All of that connected to that, right? Pretty obvious how that uh, works. So, the organization of any society, really, is utterly tied up with the question of the nature of human beings and your beliefs about other stuff. And, and those who don't get that, um, you know, they're, they're simply not being very clear-headed. It's, tr it's also true of our society, by the way. I mean, you could do an analysis of Australia using these same tools, and it might prove a very instructive thing for you to do actually, to, to work out which belief systems are implicit in the way that our society is structured, because they are there. It's just that those who currently dominate that scene don't want you to be aware they're there because they would like you to think of them as self-evident, because it's very dangerous when people begin to think they're not self-evident. They might require change, right? So, it's never in the interest of the state to let you see the guy behind the curtain and the Wizard of Oz moving the levers, as it were. But there, it's always the case that every society implies these sets of beliefs. I would say there, there's no society anywhere at any time where that is not true. So that makes it really important for Christian people to get their heads, to get our heads around the question of what it means to be a human being in this story and how that's different from other people's stories. That becomes a part of what's important. So let's get on to that, and we'll begin with Mark Twain, who said, man was made at the end of the week's work when God was tired. <coughs> so Mark Twain is a, a bit like his Mesopotamian counterparts. Human beings represent something of an afterthought in the cosmos, on his view created once the more important work was already done, and in his opinion, 
we are not up to the standards of God's previous work. We're, we're, We're at the end of the week, and we don't represent the best of it. Um, Well, that's the Mesopotamian view in a way, but the biblical literature absolutely does not share that Mesopotamian view. So, not for the first time, we have to reckon with this rather extraordinary, radical, countercultural, utterly different view on an important, a topic of great importance. In biblical faith, we are not created in order to meet God's needs. That's the fundamental thing. The world's not about the gods. And God didn't need to create. God's a person who, it turns out, is Trinitarian in nature and perfectly content in God's relationships with God's self. And there's no idea that God creates because He needs company or needs slaves or whatever in biblical faith. God does not have ongoing needs. So you don't have to worry about feeding the gods and keeping the gods happy in the temple and stuff. All of that is not part of this scene either. And that's because... The world in biblical faith is not created for the gods in the first place. The world is created for creatures. There's a fundamental shift, paradigm shift. Uh, So, the world is made for us. It's not made for God in that sense. We do not need to feed the gods. In fact, the emphasis of the Genesis story is on how well God feeds us. You notice all the emphasis on just how wonderfully things work, and, and even at the level of aesthetics. The trees were not only good to eat, but beautiful. It's a gratuitous little comment thrown in there, really important, right? So, this world is made for us, and our position in it, human beings, is a a highly exalted position. It's not the bottom of a pyramid. Human beings in Genesis are not made on the sixth day because God was tired, as it were, at the end of the working week. They come on the sixth day because they represent in Genesis 1 the high point of creation. Not the only important creature, as we talked about, but crucially important for the the functional well-being of the system in the view of Genesis. And at this point, something utterly amazing happens because human beings are taken out of the role of being caretakers of a divine image in a temple and we become the divine image in the temple. So, you see immediately the significance of that. We're no longer slaves serving the image of the God. We are ourselves the image of the God, male and female, by the way, which is also pretty radical, actually, in the ancient context. And so, the idea is that, in fact, the whole cosmos is God's temple, And we are placed in it as His image bearers, made in His own likeness. We are like God uh, in, in ways that are not fully unpacked, actually. We have to then go and do some thinking about what that means, and we'll do that in a second. But for the moment, just notice the, the intrinsic importance of that image-bearing language. And of course, it's because this is such a precious thing at the individual level that you then get the insistence that you do in Genesis 9-6, that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall blood be shed. Notice the reason, for in the image of God has God made man, you see. 
uh, the idea here is there's no equivalent thing that you could ever put alongside a human life to compensate for it, you see? That's the idea. It's a very high idea. And by the way, it demonstrates that the image-bearing nature that we have does not disappear because of the fall. It's another, just another little thing about what we were talking about last weekend. We're still image-bearers. And the ethical obligations we have still apply in relation to that. So whatever happened to the image, and I prefer to use words like fracturing or something like that, whatever happened to the image, we're still image bearers, every single one of us. So, uh, yeah, there's a bit of havoc, a bit of chaos released in the world, and it's not pleasant, it's not good, but fundamentally it doesn't alter how the Bible regards human beings and how we should treat each other, uh, loving each other. So, let's think a bit about the uh, image and likeness language. The analogy is obviously with this um, image in the temple stuff from the ancient world. Uh, the, the Israelites, you remember, are forbidden to worship such images. We talked a bit about that last evening, I think it was. Uh, from a biblical point of view, even though the Mesopotamians would have thought that these statutes were the very embodiment of divinity, so they did not think these were merely statues, right? But the biblical authors did think that, and they they say that. These are merely man-made gods of wood and stone which cannot see or hear or eat or smell, Deuteronomy chapter 4. So, from a biblical point of view, these are dead things. These are simply the works of human hands. They're not gods. But that's not to say there are no such things as images. We, I in this case, uh, step in to that uh, role. And the question is, what does that language mean, the the image-bearing language? A number of suggestions have been made over the Christian centuries as people have reflected on the question about how human beings are uh, are different from the rest of creation. And some very plausible things have been said about that. Uh, For many authors through the ages, the primary thing is that we can reason, particularly those who were in conversation with the Greek tradition, tended to emphasize that question of reason because you remember that reason is the whole ball game, as it were, for for Plato and so on. Senses are not reliable, but reason is the way. Uh, But there's, in this case, I I don't see any problem with that. For sure, that's part of it. I don't think it's the only part of it. I think it also resides more in in the heart, if you like, than in the mind, although we're talking metaphorically, of course, here. Uh, But not just intellectually, but in our ability to make moral choices, to to construct our reality, to, to behave otherwise than simply by instinct or in response to environment. If you think about how the rest of animal creation goes, you can see that our ability to step back, reflect, choose to do what's not instinctive, choose to shape our environment instead of being shaped. These are all good ideas about what it means to be a person made in the image of the person of God. As important as they all are, though, I do just want to throw in a cautionary note here because there's an important thing that's left out of that discussion that I've just been introducing uh, to you, Um, and it has to do with 
what images did in the ancient world, not just how the image language talks about our personhood, but the question, what were images for? So, uh, we're forbidden to make images. We are images. That's very exalted language, but what does it all add up to? And the thing that's often left out here is the representative aspect of this. The image in the temple was the very representative embodiment of God in the temple, right? So, our representative function, the tasks we are, done, we are to do on behalf of God in the world is a huge part of the image-bearing thing. It's not just what is essential, it's also what's functional, right? So, we mustn't lose that. But whichever way you, you parse that out and, and add it up, it is very extraordinary that in a philosophical religious tradition that insists that you must not image God, it's very extraordinary that that language of image-bearing should be used at all of human beings. It's very risky language. I mean, obviously, the most important risk is that we might get confused about that and want to be like God, which is actually how the story turned out. Close enough to the real thing, would like the real thing instead, please. That's really what Genesis 3 is about. So, it's very risky language. How do we account for that? Uh, the only way I can account for it is, is this, that human beings are so exalted that you just have to take the risk of using that language because nothing else will do. It's the only language that can actually capture in biblical faith who human beings are. Now, you see the risk of this in Psalm 8 in particular. Um, so, this is where that question, what is a human being, comes from. NIV translation, what is man in that broad generic sense? What is man that you're mindful of him at the bottom of the screen? the Son of Man, that you care for Him. And the context in which that question is being asked is very interesting. The writer of this psalm is looking up at the heavens. Now, remember, in the ancient world, the heavens is not just the sky. The heavens is where the great gods live, yeah? So, the sun and the moon. So, it's the home of the great gods, and the psalmist doesn't believe that that's really where the great gods, plural, are. But nonetheless, he looks up at this majestic, awesome sight, as, as we often do. Uh, even if they're not gods, it's still pretty impressive, right? And this awesome sight leads him to this question. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, so that's orthodox Yahwism, right? What is man that you should be mindful of him? And in Mesopotamia, had they spoken Spanish, the answer would be nada. Nothing is the answer to that question. What is the biblical answer? You made him a little lower than, and I think we should translate this, God not heavenly beings, actually. I think this is a bit of nervousness in the translator's mind here at this point. You made him a little lower than God, and the reason I think that is because, notice what it says next, you crowned him with glory and honor. Glory and honor are divine attributes in Scripture. Uh, so, those words, glory and honor, are pretty crucial. 
So what is a human being? Well, a human being is the closest person to God that you can, the closest creature to God that you can conceive of, a little lower than. Now, it's still a very significant distinction, but you see how there's this compelling idea that he has to really flirt with, with danger here in order to communicate how exalted human beings are. And he goes on, just to underline this, you made him ruler. That's that dominion language, and it draws from Genesis, of course, over the works of your hands, and you put everything under his feet, right? So, that's the Genesis dominion language. So, we are, in that sense, gods in relation to the rest of creation. We are God-like in a very appropriate way. And this is mind-blowing, and so he begins the psalm, and he ends the psalm with this same line, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's just a fantastic thing. You can't get away from it. So, this psalm recognizes the extraordinary nature of the situation, praises God for it, because in this view of the cosmos, every human being has been raised to the status of divinity and royalty, having been a slave just a moment ago. It's the ultimate social mobility. Right? You go from here to here, and there's nothing like that in the ancient world. That's an extraordinary… In fact, there's not much like it still, if we're perfectly honest about it. This is an extraordinary idea. So, William Shakespeare trumps, although that, that verb is going to become problematic soon, <laughs> Mark Twain. Shakespeare gets it in Hamlet. Do you remember this? What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, is in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god. That's Christian theology. Mark Twain is something else, I suggest. This is really bang on. So, we may be formed out of the dust of the ground. We have humble origins, if you like, and indeed we have common origins with, with, with the land animals on day six. So, in that sense, we are indeed just animals. We're very like, well, we are animals from that point of view. We are indeed in biblical thinking fragile creatures. We have limited span of life. We are vulnerable to many threats. We are dust, we are grass, you know all these metaphors, all of that is true, all of that is biblical, but we are also fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139, we are crowned with glory and honor, given the attributes of divinity. Psalm 8 verse 5, we are made for clay but destined for glory. That's how I would put it in this story. It's a very extraordinary story. Radical idea. That's the Jerusalem idea. Now, one of the reasons this is a, a radical idea is precisely for this reason, that anthropology and politics are entirely bound up with each other. So, what you think a human being is directly impacts your politics, among other things, directly influences your idea of the good society and how it should be constructed. It was so in Babylon, and it is so in Jerusalem. So, this particular idea of the human being and the destiny of the human being, which we'll come back to later this afternoon, 
these ideas are always bound up with the notion of the good society. And right at the heart of this image-bearing idea, there are two overall emphases that are really important. The first is the humanistic emphasis of the biblical view. The gods have been eliminated from the cosmos. They've gone. Human beings have taken the place of the gods at the center of the whole story. They live in a world designed for creatures. It's not only the human creatures that God cares about, but nonetheless, human beings are really important for the whole kind of functioning of the the system, and the well-being of human creatures certainly does lie at the heart of God's concern. Each and every human life, in particular, bearing God's image is deeply significant, and it is inviolable, right? So, a very strong emphasis on the, the value of the individual human person. What does that mean? Well, it means in ancient Israel, in Mosaic Yahwism, it means, for example, that the good society is not to be ordered around human sacrifice. That was a pretty common feature of ancient old religion, whether you're in Mesopotamia or whether you are later on in Latin America you know, with the Inca. Broadly similar approach, this idea of propitiation and sacrifice and all that idea. But in, uh, in the Old Testament, human life is not to be wasted on that because pleasing the gods is not the main thing in that sense anymore. Human beings don't exist for the gods in that sense, so you don't take people and do that kind of thing. In this view, even kings cannot treat human life lightly. Uh, I mean, if you're a totalitarian pharaoh or a king of Babylon, you can do what you like, basically. Certainly, if you're pharaoh, you can, because you are a divinity, and who can question that? But think about King Ahab. When he tries to steal Naboth's vineyard, what does he uh, discover? He discovers that uh, you can't just go and do that kind of thing. And there are consequences, remember? So, the king is constrained. The humanism of the Bible means that even the weakest and the most marginal members of society must be looked after, the widows and the orphans, not simply abandoned to their fate. It means, as we saw last evening, that even our enemies should be given hospitality because they're image bearers too. It means that even slaves have rights, as we saw in the book of Job and indeed in the law. It means a whole bunch of other things beyond that, but it certainly means those. So, biblical faith is a humanistic faith, and it bothers me when people oppose Christianity and humanism. This is a big thing in America. People rabbit on about secular humanism, and I say, okay, yeah, is that the only form of it, though? Isn't there a Christian humanism? Didn't we actually invent it, actually, now that I come to think of it? You know, uh, biblical faith, I want to propose, is humanistic faith. And this is the very reason, historically, that so many people have embraced it as true, right? They have found in this image of God idea a deep sense that they are part of creation 
similar to other creatures and yet utterly different. That's what the image of God language does for you. It, it says from one point of view, yeah, you're right, we are animals, but from this other point of view, we're something else entirely. And that resonates, I think, with, with human experience. And lots of people have rejoiced through the ages to uh, discover this affirming truth about their uh, humanity, and indeed, it has given them back their humanity when they have lost it. I told you, I think, uh, last weekend, but some of you weren't here, so let me just repeat um, the day in Vancouver when Kumar Swami came to speak in our church. He's uh, one of the leaders of the Dalit freedom movement in India. The Dalit are the outcasts, the lowest of the low, not actually persons in, in the whole caste system. There are 250 million of them in India. I don't know how many people around Australia, but it's probably not 250 million. I'm just guessing. So, that's a lot of people, right? At the bottom, 250 million non-persons in India. Right at the bottom of the caste system, not regarded as human beings by those who believe in that system, by which I mean any orthodox Hindu person, in fact. Uh, they're treated as you would expect non-human persons to be treated. Um, just a short while ago, I read a newspaper report about a 15-year-old Dalit boy, Sai Ram, who was set alight and burned to death in the East Indian state of Bihar because one of his goats strayed onto a field and grazed on the crops there, and the landowner was of a higher caste, and he thought nothing about just burning this boy to death. Um, there are currently 17,000 pending trials in Bihar alone involving violence against Dalit people. Shouldn't be surprising. I mean, it follows automatically from the non-person status of the people, right? And Kumar Swami uh, testified to the power of the biblical story in his own life. The day that he first heard from his brother, I think it was, that the Genesis story said that he was the image bearer of God. That was the text that grabbed his attention because he was being told in this story that he was a person of equal worth and dignity with everybody else. You can imagine what a difference that would make if you had grown up in that culture. So, a strongly humanistic emphasis. Um, Second uh, major thing about the biblical idea, the Genesis idea, uh, that there's a very strong democratic emphasis uh, in this story. Uh, the very fact a king could not simply take human life without proper legal cause. The very fact that slaves did have rights, even though they were limited. These ideas themselves are echoing this notion that all human beings are image bearers, that all of us share a role in the governance of the earth and the care of the earth. All of us, women, men, and by implication children as well as adults, are to be treated as gods in that appropriate sense. And that suggests, of course, that however you organize your society, if this story is the story, the, the capital S, the ethos of your society is going to be egalitarian. 
no matter how you actually organize it in practice, for all the local circumstances and all the things we talked about earlier on that might prevent you carrying it through completely. Nonetheless, the ethos is going to be egalitarian. So where in the ancient world the divine king is at the top of the pyramid, lives in the realm of the gods, and the king, kingship is crucial to the ancient story. The kings were given as a gift by the gods to human beings. So they're, they're right there in the architecture of the cosmos, kings. You can't do without kings. Think about the Israelite story. You don't have a king for an awful long time. And the day they ask for one, it's an outrageous, rebellious act. Do you remember? We, we would like a king, please, like all the other nations, which is, of course, a huge missing of the point because they're not called to be like the other nations. They're called to be countercultural, right? So, uh, so when a king shows up in the biblical story, it is presented as a terrible sin on the part of the people to ask for one. The prophet Samuel gives dire warnings about what will happen. He basically says, if you have a king, you're going to become like all the other nations in lots of ways you won't like. First Samuel 8, he describes how the whole society, the economics will now gravitate around the center. You will lose your stakeholding. You will lose your participation. Think about Deuteronomy 17. The only good king is one who's one of you who understands the thing from the inside out, who gets the ethos. If you're going to have one, it has to be somebody like that because that at least stands a chance. But if you bring in a king from Egypt or Mesopotamia, you're, you're basically done. Very interesting. So, a highly democratic impulse, um, which, of course, as with everything else, doesn't just land one day and then you just, it's all there, you know, it's, it's an impulse that seeps out and moves through and over the course of time begins to change things in quite substantial uh, ways and leads to a very different idea eventually of what the good society looks like and how we should govern ourselves and who should participate. And that's already happening back in the 13th century or thereabouts in Europe in the Peasants' Revolt in England, when one of the leaders of the Peasants' Revolt, a very bold man, I think his name was Watt Tyler, if I remember correctly, said this, referring to the Bible, addressing the king, he says this, when Adam dwelled, delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? From the beginning, all men by nature were created alike, and our bondage and servitude came in by the unjust oppression of wicked men. Therefore, I exhort you to consider that now the time has come, appointed to us by God, in which ye may, if ye will, cast off the yoke of bondage and recover liberty. It sounds like the French Revolution or something. This is a much, much earlier these people grasped the basic thrust of the biblical story, and they saw that their society was not of that sort, and they thought, why should it not be? Now, of course, like a lot of these revolts, they were crushed and executed, and it all ended very tragically, but the point is they, they got the point. They got the point about the democratic uh, impulse. And this leads me on to the question of human rights. I alluded to this in the first talk last Friday. I just want to repeat a little bit of that because not all of you were there, and I want to expand upon it substantially. Uh, we hear a lot about human rights nowadays. I do not have any sort of problem with that. It's quite right 
that we should think about human rights and what people ought not to do to each other, as well as what they ought to do to each other. But as I asked last Friday, where do human rights come from? The idea that every person, equally male, female, young, and old, the idea that each person has rights, where does that idea come from? Many people in the post-Christian West, because of our loss of memory and all of that, appear to think that one day we just woke up and we recognized that we had them. Uh, They are self-evident. That's the language that's normally used of this. And this, of course, I, I pointed this out last week, this is indeed the view of the American Declaration of Independence. Uh, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator, so a certain amount of nodding towards a certain kind of God, with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's self-evident. But the fact of the matter is there's nothing self-evident about it, actually. If you look at history and you look at how different societies have organized themselves and handled themselves and how they have treated other tribes and cultures, how they have conducted war, unsurprisingly, because we know that politics and stuff is all bound up with bigger world picture, you do not find any self-evidentness about what we now call human rights. Genghis Khan, I don't remember him as a great advocate of human rights. You wouldn't expect it. His worldview did not provide a basis for that kind of concern. Uh, Prevailing meta-narratives in the ancient world allowed no space for that view of human rights. Uh, Let's go back to Athens, which is where Edwin began. And I, I commented on this fabulous idea, and I do mean fabulous in its proper sense, that Athens is the cradle of Western democracy. You still see this repeated in school textbooks and so on. But the reality is that Athens was not especially democratic at all. I mean, relative to Persia, it was kind of more democratic than the Persians, obviously. But Athens was a resolutely hierarchical society. The only people fully involved in political life were the adult male citizens who had completed their military training. The majority of the population was excluded from political life. All the women were excluded. All the slaves were excluded, you know, and all the people who were not of that adult male category that I just said were excluded as well. And this was not a pragmatic failure to implement a societal vision that was more egalitarian. It wasn't that they had a different idea, but they were incompetent. They just couldn't pull it off. That's not true. Athenian politics, a bit like the Hindu caste system, Athenian politics resulted directly from a particular understanding of human beings. And Edwin touched on this. The general Athenian and Greek sentiment was that slavery, in particular, was a good and necessary institution because, this is crucial, why was it a good and wise institution? Because it took account of the true nature of slaves. It was, it was suitable to their nature. You see the importance of the point? 
The politics arose from an anthropology. Aristotle put it this way, slaves and brute animals cannot form a state for they have no share in happiness or in a life of free choice. <coughs> With respect to women, Hesiod earlier had expressed the view that women had been visited on men as a punishment because Prometheus, the champion of humanity, had stolen fire from the gods. Therefore, Zeus, and I'm quoting, made women mischievous in their ways and a curse for men. It's a prevailing authoritative Greek view, I'm sorry to say. Uh, now, belief in Hesiod's gods had been eroded by the 5th century in Athens. Hesiod and Homer were a bit more questionable by the time we get Plato and so on. But the negativity about women didn't go away just because Hesiod was going away. And this was not accidental either. With the notable exception of Plato, Athenian philosophers believed that women possessed strong emotions and weak minds. That was the prevailing anthropology. The, the position of women in Athenian society, excluded from political and economic life, simply reflected that fundamental belief. For Aristotle, the relationship of male and female went as follows. The male is by nature superior and the female inferior. The one rules and the other is ruled. Now notice by nature. It's not just a matter of social organization. Society is ordered thus because this is what is natural. That's the argument. Again, the male, Aristotle, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, and the inequality is permanent. So that's Aristotle's view, and he was a jolly influential fellow in the Western tradition all the way through to the Reformation. So go figure what happens when Aristotle's your major authority on, on such matters. It's not very surprising. The societal position of women in Athens is famously summed up in these words. We have courtesans for pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our body, and wives in order to have legitimate children and a reliable custodian of our household. That was the general Athenian view. If you then go from the real Athens to the theoretical republic, right, Plato's Republic, where he's envisioning the ideal society, you do find Plato taking a different view of the nature of women. He was quite interesting in this point. He was quite countercultural in this point. Uh, so Plato had a different view uh, of who participated in the Republic. He was a kind of egalitarian, actually, on that point. Although, in Plato's case, he actually thought whether you were male or female, everyone would be subordinate to only a few people anyway who ran it. So his rather progressive views on women were rather undermined by his rigorously totalitarian approach to the state. Uh, so you, the guardians could include men and women, but essentially it's a top-down pyramidical society uh, once again. So this question of human rights, self-evident to the ancient Greeks? Obviously not, right? You can't even conceive of how they would have arrived at that view. Their cosmology is different, their theology is different, their anthropology is different. So will their politics suddenly turn out to be democratic? I don't think so. 
And it's just the same as you go across the rest of the world. Human rights of a Western kind, as they are now called, are not self-evident in India, and they are not self-evident in China, just to choose two major civilizations of the contemporary world. In fact, many parts of our world remain untouched to this day by any commitment to such human rights, and this includes the world of Islam. So you just look at the, the contemporary world, which comes to where it comes to as a result of the dominance of these different worldviews, and what do you find? You find very different societies. And my great mantra, I should have a t-shirt, it's not accidental. It's predictable. It's logical. You can see exactly why it might be once you understand the significance of worldviews. It's all about governing stories. It's all about what you think about God, the world, and human beings, and all of that. And uh, in retrospect, something like the American Declaration of Independence turns out to have been nothing other than a gigantic bluff. We hold these things to be self-evident. You just say it with confidence, and you hope for the best. You hope nobody will say, well, how? Why? Where do you get that from? And the point was, it was only self-evident to westernized, Christianized people that human beings had intrinsic human rights. And that's why the bluff carried and formed the great United States of America. But I would say it's all based on a bluff. And in fact, a lot of the internal acrimony in the States at the moment is precisely because you still have this huge argument, is the USA a Christian country, and what does that mean? And whether you think rights are self-evident or whether they're biblical becomes a big deal, big argument. And the argument goes on without people really often getting to the bottom of that argument and finding out why they're arguing. But these are the reasons, I think, fundamentally. Think about Japan, pre-war Japan, just my last example on this uh, issue. In pre-war Japan, many Japanese people were certainly not driven by any notion of equality or inalienable rights. What drove the majority of people in pre-war Japan was a deep-seated desire to get into harmony with nature. Now, why? Because the dominant religion of Japan was Shinto, and Shinto is naturalistic, animistic religion. So you're getting into harmony with the way things are, and that meant getting into line with the will of the divine emperor at the top of the pyramid. Right? You recognize that model? It anciently reached right through to modern East. Same idea. You have this divine emperor. What is the right thing to do self-evidently? Self-evidently, the right thing to do is to get in line with the emperor. That's the right thing. Not obvious in pre-war Japan in the slightest degree that there were such things as inalienable individual human rights. And actually, I don't think that would have been self-evident to the majority of those who have lived on this planet through the ages. And it's only our loss of historical memory that makes that even vaguely plausible as a proposition. What we commonly refer to in the West as human rights and what other people 
absolutely understand our Western views of human rights. That's how they put it. All of that is entirely tied up with the Jerusalem perspective that produced the Western world in the first place. And this is where I want to return to that great quote that I gave you last Friday, just the, the clinching little illustration on this point. You may remember those of you who were here, the newspaper article reporting the assassination in 2009 of the women's rights activist and provincial legislator, Sitara Akakzai, describing the situation in Afghanistan after her death, one of her fellow women rights campaigners, Fauzia Kofi, said this, if you speak of human rights or women's rights in Afghanistan, you get accused of having converted to Christianity. We can't see it, we're too close, you know, but you, you travel a bit and you look at things from, the other folks see it, they understand. This is why the, the Chinese just don't have any real interest in the business of human rights. So there's nothing in their system that would make them empathetic to this Western view of human rights, as, as they see it, it's a Western view. Uh, so they're juggling, of course, with the question of how to become a great capitalist economic power without becoming Christian. It's the great political dilemma in China at the present time. Now, this is what makes it very puzzling to me that there should have arisen in contemporary secular culture the idea that biblical monotheism is dangerous and detrimental to human flourishing, which is a pretty big idea, I think, in our, in our culture. Uh, Tony alluded to that reality a number of times in introducing Edwin's talks, that the common idea out there that Athens is all about rationality, freedom, and rights, and human flourishing, whereas Jerusalem is a threat to all those realities and is dangerous. Well, here's the question. Is the Jerusalem story of humanity dangerous? Well, yes, I think it is, actually. But the interesting question is, dangerous to whom? That's the really important question. It's certainly dangerous to those who don't want to think of their neighbor as an image bearer of God, who don't want to think of other human beings as neighbors. It's dangerous to that idea. It's dangerous to those who want to assimilate human beings to the rest of nature and abolish any distinctions, to say that human beings are nothing very special, that individuals don't really matter. It's dangerous to those who want to argue that. Biblical faith is dangerous to those who have become confused about where the boundaries between science and philosophy lie, and who think that because human beings are in some way a product of a great evolutionary struggle, that society should be organized on that basis. So, this idea of Jerusalem is very dangerous to social Darwinists. I grant you that, for sure. Biblical faith is dangerous to those among the powerful who would like to be left alone to use and oppress the weak. This view is dangerous to those among the rich who would like to be left alone to abuse and oppress the poor. Very dangerous. Biblical faith threatens all those for whom the current social order is everything, and protecting peace and quiet and stability is the whole ballgame. It's very dangerous to that, for sure. Very dangerous to the idea 
that individual human beings are merely dispensable flotsam and jetsam in the great sea of inevitable social change. Exceedingly dangerous to those people. Jerusalem challenges every ends justifies the means argument. It challenges every greatest good argument. It confronts any idea that anyone is too young or too old, too black or too white, too sick, too different, or too foreign to have the same rights as everyone else. So it's exceedingly dangerous to those folks, for sure. Jerusalem opposes any diminution of the importance of the individual person out of regard for the convenience of other family members, the health of the economy, the good of the state, or even the well-being of the planet. The biblical idea about the human being is exceedingly dangerous to all the folks who would like to think these other ways and live in those other ways. But I have to say that the danger that lies at the heart of this revolutionary idea is not what bothers me. What bothers me is the erosion of this dangerous idea precisely among those who think that human rights are self-evident. If, in fact, the Western view of human rights is intrinsically connected with the biblical story that has shaped Western culture, if that really is true, which is what I'm proposing, and if that story is now being undermined and attacked as detrimental to human flourishing, the question is, what happens next? What happens next? What happens next, I believe, is the inevitable erosion of human rights, actually. Even while the rhetoric of human rights is rising, the actuality of them is diminishing. And actually, I think that's what's been happening before our eyes for a while now. As the great story, as this great biblical Jerusalem story has by degrees lost its grip on the Western world's soul... So, by degrees, the biblical idea of the human person has lost its grip on the Western soul. And unsurprisingly, human life is becoming cheaper among us. Life in the womb is pretty cheap. Uh, For example, routinely traded off against the convenience or wishes of parents. Life at the other end of the spectrum is becoming weaker all over the Western world as legal means have been created now to make it easier for people to end their own lives. Who is really doing the wishing to end in those contexts is, of course, a huge question that has been inadequately discussed. And since these attitudes, even on those two issues, to abortion and suicide, since attitudes on those issues represent really nothing more than the return to a stoic view of humanity, that's really what's going on. We've just decided we corporately decide we'd rather be Stoics than Christians after all. It's not surprising that we have been seeing for some time now serious public discussion whether infanticide should be legal, the killing of young children, because the Stoics regarded that as extremely unproblematic. So it's it's the next thing. It's a part of that Stoic package. Uh, The questioning of other rights is already among us. I mean, I think it seems very recently that we thought that humane treatment of prisoners under war conditions and the right to a speedy and fair trial was intrinsic to our Western culture. 
And we thought that up until about 9-11. And since that time, we don't seem to be thinking that as much. The intrinsic value of the human person, the right even of terrorists to a speedy and fair trial, for example. And I don't think that the questioning stops there. It's inevitable for all the reasons we've been discussing. It's inevitable that this should be the case because the foundation upon which human rights have been built in the West is being eroded and people need a good reason to respect other people's rights when the going gets tough. Everyone can respect each other's rights when we're all kind of happy. It's, that's not the test. The test is what happens when it's inconvenient or dangerous for you to respect other people's rights. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, who is just so brilliant on so many things, uh, says this. That was the Stoics, by the way, in the picture. Forget about that. This is G.K. Chesterton speaking about his own contemporaries on this question of big picture stories and societal practice. He says this of many of his contemporaries. Many of them held and still hold very noble and necessary truths in the social and secular area. But even these, it seemed to me, they held less firmly than they might have done if there had been anything like a fundamental principle of moral and metaphysics to support them. Their hearts were in the right place, but their heads were emphatically in the wrong place. And I think that's describing actually in large measure where we are. We have residual Christianized beliefs to some extent still constraining the way our society is built and going. But if anyone really thinks you can continue to erode the story and it won't have a calamitous effect on these shared values, if anyone thinks that arguing about self-evidentness is going to save us, then I think that is, uh, that is unlikely to be the case. Now, we're getting, we're really at the end of our time. Um, we could ask the question, and I could certainly answer questions on the question about where we would go for our ethics and our politics and all of that if it were not to the Christian story. There are very few options on that. Who gets to decide what human rights are? There are very limited options. As far as I can see, it's either the state or it is arguments based on nature. To my mind, these are utterly inadequate to buttress the kind of human rights that we have been accustomed to think are very, very important. So I end with Winnie the Pooh. Uh, climbing his honey tree, and the question is, how long is he going to stay up there if there's people down at the bottom actively cutting the tree down? And I think the answer is not long. So, it's not just for the good of the church that we need to retrieve this great Christian story. It's also for the good of our neighbor and for the good of the planet. It's the package deal. And uh, with that, I'll, uh, I'll stop for the moment. That was uh, uh, indeed wonderful, Ian. Um, we've probably got time for a couple of questions uh, before lunch. I am, however, going to take my right to say something um, beforehand. Okay. Um, you know, uh, Gospel Conversations is really committed to uh, a kind of teaching educational vision. That's mm -hmm. what we're about. We're not a parachurch movement or anything. 
And for Ron and I, education, we know what we mean by that, which is the big game is paradigms. It's not details, that we human beings are framed by big ideas. And shifting paradigms is the deepest way we learn. I think that's actually what Paul meant by Romans 12 and the transformation of their minds. People could think, uh, Ian, for you and for our, our other stuff in Gospel Conversations, that uh, the, this is theory. <laughs> this is just you know, theory. I want something practical. Um, and uh, when I was a younger person, a younger consultant, I, I had the idea that uh, great activity or dangerous activity from leaders was a matter of skills and a matter of character and temperament. But then I found something that began to chill my soul, which is nothing is as important as a worldview. Because I saw nice people doing bad things, and it was actually their worldview that was doing it. Of course, this was most famously summed up, as you would know, by Hannah Arendt, mm -hmm. uh, when she went to the Nuremberg trials. Do you all know that story? Um, as a Jew she, and a philosopher, she went to the Nuremberg trials, and she was imagining that she would finally see the devil. She was imagining that she would see monstrous human beings who, in their physiognomy, looked as evil as they had done. And she was stunned because she saw mild-mannered accountants dressed in suits and ties who you would never, could not align their behaviours with who they looked like. And she coined the famous phrase that she saw the banality of evil. Yeah. Evil is banal, fed by bad yeah. uh, ideas. So the battle for ideas is, is epic. And, and I think, hence, by taking back to the fundamentals uh, of the faith, which people generally don't, uh, I think that kind of, um, us Christians haven't done a good enough job of it. It's, it's not a small thing. I often think Pol Pot... I mean, he ended up murdering a million people. And if you wanted to change that, you could either try and have an army or, or some intervention. But if somebody different had met the 20-year-old Pol Pot in the cafes of Paris and had a different conversation, the world would have been different. Yeah. Yeah. So big ideas really matter. So that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> but let's have a couple of perhaps questions. One, one here, one there. Thanks, Ian. Helen and I were just talking about your first message this morning. We were saying how proud we were of God after we listened to it. So that's a compliment to mm. what you brought to us today. Question for you. Uh, we talk about God's approach being from the inside out, not mm. superimposed on people. Yeah. How does, um, say, political Christian parties fit into that and Christian activism fit into that paradigm? Well, I, I think this is one of our biggest questions, not least because we are perceived oftentimes from the outside as being on the coercive end of the spectrum, shall we say, that, that we want to force everyone to be and to do and all the rest of that. And of course, law and government is coercive. I mean, we have prisons, that's pretty coercive. It's not that coercion is by itself a problem. In some parts of life, it's an, a necessary evil, I think. Um, but I do think that our whole posture 
uh, really, if we're really trying to get into this um, biblical idea that I was articulating and learn from how God appears to be interacting with the world, how we should do, I think it has to be much more persuasive, much more, um, much more respectful of other people's humanity, even if they're really screwed up in making terrible decisions, and even if they're really wicked, actually. We have to try to find a distinctively Christian way of approaching it, no matter what the content may be of our ideas. Um, our ideas may be perfectly good ideas, but the trouble is, unless we can persuade other people that they're good ideas within their own frame of reference, in other words, unless we can mount a common good argument, we don't really have a chance anyway of getting those good ideas into, into the public domain. So I think it's, it's really about thinking about posture, first and foremost. Um, so here I, here I am, I have a very clear, of the, clear idea I believe, of the ethos, what I'm called to be and to do. And the question is, okay, now I have to relate to this society in which there are many people who do not agree and may count me to be an enemy. So how am I to then approach that? That's an individual question, but it's also then a question for political parties, actually, and uh, whether there ought to be such things even as Christian political parties is a very interesting question. Because of this dynamic, uh, is it not perhaps better for there to be Christians involved in political parties with all the messiness and compromise? And, you know, any of you involved in that business know how, how challenging that is. But it seems to me to be the right kind of challenge, though. If the story, as I've been trying to retell it here, is at all accurate, I think it is that sacrificial, in the midst of the mess kind of approach, doing the best you can to nudge things towards the good. Um, I think we should consider that as a better model for our political engagement. Um, and if I could just add to that, bringing together some of the big components and wonderful connections we've got in Second Road is Edwin judge so his the latest interview I did with him is extremely important so Edwin like Ian has the early church and increasingly me joining their exalted company has the early very early church fathers as their heroes so just so you know I'll quote what you told me other uh, other day it's not Augustine who should have been the superstar it's Irenaeus I do that, and I grew up a Presbyterian Calvinist, and that's yeah. quite a conversion. But uh, now, um, so, so I mean, Augustine. Let's be fair; he wrote some really good stuff. He wrote some really good stuff. But, but I've distracted myself somewhat here. Yeah. But um, I think if we put Edwin's view of the political, political quote unquote, activities of the early Christian Church, first and second century and third century, together with your first talk, we've got a really interesting paradigm because. His whole point was they, they did not form an identifiable uh, political unit. That's why the Romans couldn't handle them. The Romans knew how to handle political units. They, they could squash them. They could, but these guys simply didn't. They were participating in society. They actually, that was part of the problem. They were not fostering rebellion, revolt, etc. Right. But they did have an entire, they were just like a pervasive yeast throughout, and, the Romans were so confused by that. Edwin is so sympathetic to the poor old Romans. 
and that we lost the plot from Constantine on when we began to translate that yeast into identifiable social institutions that were called Christian. So that's kind of a sort of a summary of yeah. that. So gentlemen right at the back there had have one up. more and then we'll take a break. Welcome again. I'm expecting a tough question, Ian. I'm trying not to wander from this camera. My instinct is to wander over and be friendly, but I'm trying to stay here. So, uh, I'd like to ask a question related to the previous slide. I was wondering if you could maybe go back to the previous slide with a quote from uh, Chesterton. Um, so when you put that quote up, it reminded me of some of the things that uh, Friedrich Nietzsche was saying about 100 or so years ago. Um, he said, for example, that um, morality is not yet a problem for the English gentleman. Yes. And he also talked about some of the atheists in his time, and he said something along the lines of, for every step that they take away from God, they take two steps towards Christian morality. <laughs> and he was very critical of that. And he, yeah. he saw, I think, more clearly than many other atheists do today because he was actually from a family that had been Lutheran ministers, I think, for at least a couple of generations. Yeah. He saw that if people were to be consistent and move away from a belief in a Christian God, that they gave up the possibility of clinging to Christian morality. Yeah. And I was at a conference yesterday uh, at Notre Dame University on religious liberty, one of the speakers made the point that in dealing with a number of issues that are coming up at the moment, euthanasia, same-sex marriage and so on, that uh, this was the, the legal department at Notre Dame University. Mm. They were saying that engaging with on a number of these issues from a, a legal perspective, that they're engaging with people in Australia today now who don't have a biblical worldview, mm -hmm. They don't share the, the basic assumptions that you've been outlining. Yeah. They talked about a lack of biblical literacy. Yeah. Uh, and they said that this is really a, a huge problem for them in trying to communicate yeah. with other people who are making laws and uh, acting politically in this country mm -hmm. uh, on all these sorts of issues. And that there's just a, a basic failure to communicate. Yeah. Uh, that people don't actually understand why Christians hold the views that they do on certain issues anymore. Yeah. Um, and so, for example, you were talking about the idea of inalienable rights. Um, it seems that on some issues that we're in a post-Christian society where um, the idea of equality has become an autonomous principle. Yeah. And so Christians are now in this strange position where having been a religion that's actually pushed the idea of equality for centuries, we're now almost seen as an obstacle to equality for people who have different sexual identities, for example. Yeah. So, sorry for that long backdrop, but my question is, then is, with all of that in mind, how can we promote biblical literacy? How can we promote... Right. A, a, an idea of the Christian worldview so that we can communicate effectively with other people in our own society who don't yeah. understand us anymore? Well, that's a very large and really, really important question. Uh, let, let me just respond a bit on Nietzsche. I think Nietzsche was one of the 
most insightful of the modern philosophers. And I think the quality of atheism has sadly declined in our time, if I can put it that way. Um, on, the, on the bigger issue here, I think there is a problem maybe a level further back, and it's got to do with how genuinely pluralist our post-Christian Western cultures are and how much access in reality all citizens get to public discourse. So how is it that people don't understand where Christians are coming from? And there's more than one answer to that. Part of the problem is a kind of not wanting to go there attitude on the part of the church, a kind of dichotomous, you know, the church and society. It's one of the things we're trying to overcome in this context. But that's not the total answer. The total answer is a willful marginalization of contrary voices by those who call themselves liberal but actually are ideologically motivated people. And I get quite nostalgic for old-fashioned liberals myself because you don't meet many of them anymore, by which I mean genuinely urbane and tolerant pluralist people. I mean, some of my university teachers were of such a, a character. Uh, you didn't have to agree with them to get a good grade. They were very anxious to get a good argument, and they understood exactly what it meant to operate in a public university and what it meant to educate instead of to bully, for example. Well, you know, I have to say my general, my general view has become a bit more jaundiced on some of these issues, uh, certainly back where I live, and it's probably the same here, I think. Uh, so the more the ideological edge has taken over, the more difficult it is to get into public discourse, and so ignorance automatically arises. And so the bigger question behind the question you're asking is, can we make a common good argument for, with people that that's a bad way of running society precisely because of the unfortunate consequences? Because it could and is happening to any group. It's not just the Christians that's happening to. There's already complete incomprehension on a whole host of other issues because the people at the core of that argument, it's in their advantage to hold things to be self-evident. It makes it sound very neutral and scientific as if there's no investment of passion or desire involved. It's just the way it is. Well, that's great. If you want to hold on to power, that's a wonderful thing to get other people to believe because you can't argue with it. It's self-evident. So I, it's not just a matter of Christians not being as interested in the world as they should have been. There's also stuff going on which I think is profoundly unhealthy for society. And one of the biggest problems is this notion of the naked public square. That fundamental metaphor for how many people seem to think we ought to engage in public discourse, namely, leave everything that is particular to your identity behind you and enter this neutral, this allegedly neutral space. Well, it's not neutral, of course. Of course it's not. It's dominated by a secularist ideology, which is not being admitted to being an ideology. And then we're all invited to, as it were, discuss things if we are in this incredibly uneven playing field, as it were. So is, is that a viable way of running a society in which there are many people with many different views? It's not a viable way. And I don't think it's what we corporately signed up for in the 17th century. I think what we corporately signed up for was a kind of uneasy truce whereby we promise not to kill each other, 
but to try and persuade each other instead. But it wasn't the idea that we're all going to divest ourselves of the things that are most fundamentally important to us in order to enter the political sphere. So there's a bit of a, there's a bit of sleight of hand, a bit of trickery going on here, and to me that's the biggest problem actually. If you have ever tried, you know, people say to me, well, Christians ought to be involved more in public discourse. And I said, have you ever tried that? You ever really wanted to do that and then tried to work out how to do it? It's much more, I have, it's much more difficult than you, than you think because the gatekeepers are very good at their job. So I'm not sure if I am, I think I am answering your question because I'm taking it back a level to what I think the fundamental problem is. If you talk a good pluralist talk, but you don't actually have a pluralist society where there is genuine discussion and a meeting of minds and hearts between stakeholders, as it were, you are going to get dysfunction and later totalitarianism because in a sense, the people not in the discussion become non-persons in a way. They're outside the edges of appropriate behavior. And now what you do is you bring legal sanctions against them and all of that. That's partly actually what's happening in Canada a little bit now on the same-sex issue. Uh, the question of, of who the people who are under legal threat or any kind of threat now is, that's shifted markedly, actually. And now the people under threat are anyone who dares to even utter publicly what we might consider the traditional Christian view on such matters. So the pendulum is swung from here right over to here. And freedom of speech, freedom of religion issues are very much in question. But is it perceived that way by the folks who are doing it? No, it's perceived as standing up for what's right and just over against fundamentalist, obscurantist, wicked people. Have they ever met a Christian, any of these people? intelligent one anyway, who will give an argument rather than just bluster? Well, maybe they have, I don't know, but I get the impression increasingly not. If the caricaturing that's going on is any guide to that. Um, so there's a massive, massive common good issue one step further back, I think. Yeah. Okay, that's a, that's a powerful uh, answer, um, and it raises... Uh, a very, very important uh, point, which is the uh, vital importance of having a theory of discourse um, and inquiry. Uh, so, probably not the time to begin that discussion now. Um, so, let's we'll regather. We'll definitely begin again at two o'clock. Two o'clock. Yep. Um, for those who are really would like to have a that discussion I mentioned earlier, um, let's uh, say around about one o'clock. We'll meet out there and uh, do a bit of brainstorming and um, don't feel any, under any obligation to come if you, unless you've really got things to say. Okay, thanks you, Ian.